Our text this morning is Luke 9, 7 through 20, excuse me, 27. Luke 9, 7 through 27. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And the crowds learned of it, or when the crowds learned of it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to, the, or he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does, it prof- what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for these words that have been recorded for us uh, through Luke, who is carried along by the Holy Spirit so that these accounts are your very word. God, I pray that 
we would fall before these words, our creator, the one who speaks to us, that we would listen, that we might have life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is, Who Do You Say That I Am? This is the question that Jesus asked his disciples. It was the question that was on everybody's mind in Israel. I wonder who you say who Jesus is. We live in a culture that values sincerity much higher than objective truth. We live in a culture that says, as long as you got faith in something, and that faith is sincere, then that's all that really matters. The details of what your faith is in doesn't matter. Now, that cultural reality that we happen to be born into was not founded upon the Scriptures. The Scripture does not value sincerity and heartfelt felt trust over theological accuracy. They're not opposed to each other. The Bible says both are important. You can have theological accuracy and end up in hell because you don't trust in the thing that's in your head. Or you can be sincerely wrong and heartfelt, but be trusting in that which cannot give you hope. If your friend were to ask, or if you were to make a new friend and you were talking to them and you were curious whether or not they were a Christian and you were to ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yes. If you're relieved at that point and say, hoofta, I just made a friend who's a Christian. You're naive. Because we live in a day and age of Hundreds of Jesuses. Many, many books are written about Christ. You could be talking to that same friend, and they may tell you that they believe in Jesus. They may tell you they go to church. They may tell you that they've been praying for you. And they may be the sweetest, kindest person you've ever met, And yet, if you find security that, oh good, this is a Christian, you are naive. We want to know what people mean when they say, I believe in Jesus. We want to know what Jesus they believe in. There's many Jesuses out there. We want to know what people are receiving Jesus for. In fact, when uh, we just saw the parable of the four soils that Jesus told about a sower that goes out and scatters seed, he's sowing a field. Some seed falls 
on the path. And Jesus tells us that the soils represent different types of ears that hear the gospel, different types of people who hear the gospel. The one that falls on the path is the person who hears the gospel. They don't understand it. And Jesus says, Satan just snatches it away. Take it away. The second soil is the, is the seed that falls on the rocky soil. And what does Jesus say? These are the people that hear the word and they receive it with joy. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But what they receive Jesus for is a better life. They think Jesus is going to make their life easier. So Jesus says, these people, when suffering comes, get rid of Jesus. They, they quit believing in him. So isn't this amazing? They've received Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. But they were trusting in him to have an easier life on this earth. And when the sun came out, there was no roots in that soil. The plant dies. The third type of hearer is this seed that falls among the thorns. This is the person who receives Jesus because they're intrigued by him. They're entertained by him. But the world has all sorts of different forms of entertainment and intrigue that kind of choke out the original trust in Christ and it proves unfruitful. But then Jesus talks about a four-soiled, good soil that hears the word and produces fruit. There's a changed life that comes from the belief. But he's already created the category of people who receive him for the wrong reason. They don't understand what they're receiving. And the New Testament is full of warnings that you're not deceived into believing a different Jesus. Listen to Luke 21.8. And he said, See that you are not led astray. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Right before he goes to the cross, he says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. He says, don't go after them. Jesus said, I'm going to warn you. There's a lot of people. They're going to come and say, I am he. They're going to come up with a different Jesus, same name. They're going to claim it out of the same book. But is it the Jesus the Bible gives us? In fact, one of the, the two biggest heresies in the early church that attacked the newfound believers of Christ, was one of them was uh, believing that, and this is actually the the less influential one of the day. It would be more influential today. But those who believed Jesus wasn't divine. In fact, the early church, very few people uh, struggled with his divinity because they watched the miracles. In fact, the, when you take all the early church history, the first and second century, nobody's questioning the miracles. Even in the Bible, Jesus' opponents can't challenge the miracles, but they say he does them by the power of Satan. And so the thing they struggled with most is not Jesus' divinity, which the Bible says he is God, equal with the Father, eternally existing, 
But the thing they struggled with is, was he really human? Because he did these things. Because he raised from the dead. Uh, one of the heresies was is that he merely looked human. Because the Gnostics believed flesh was bad. That, that skin and bones was bad and spiritual things were good. So surely Jesus was just spirit. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus came in the flesh and was divine. You could read 1 John and you'll read things like this. 1 John 2.18, children, the last hour is coming. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. So these are people that originally were with the followers of Christ, but then they got weird. But he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One. I think he's pointing to the Holy Spirit that's been given to them. You have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because there is, uh, because no lie is of the truth. And then he says, who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Don't have a hunger after all of these crazy teachings that offshoot out of what you've heard in the beginning. So this is uh, John teaching, believe that he is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the promised Savior from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then in chapter 4, he's saying, you better believe that he came in the flesh. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is divine and he's not 100% human as well as 100% God, even if he's 50-50, he cannot be your savior. Your sin is against divinity. And the only punishment that can cover your sin against the divine would be one who stands in your place that has the same value of the one whom you offended. Your savior has to be God. The whole Testament says only God saves. But yet if he's only God and he's not human, then he can't represent us. We need someone who is 100% human because humans have sin and humans need their sin taken away. That's why this, Paul tells Timothy, there is one mediator and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other but the early church was tempted to believe he wasn't in the flesh so he writes this beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from god for many false prophets have gone out into the world by this you know the spirit of god all right you ready for the test every spirit that confesses jesus christ as representing his deity christ God's Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit 
that confesses Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is really human, is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So the question before us is not, do you believe in Jesus? It's what Jesus do you believe in? And what are you believing in him for? If I took a, I'm not going to have much time to go through it, uh, but I looked at uh, the world religions, the ones that we come across. You see, every one of them has to deal with Jesus. <laughs> Our time is set by Christ. You have to deal with them. So what are you going to say about him? Judaism says he's Mary's son, but that she wasn't a virgin. He was a popular rabbi and teacher. He had many disciples. He was respected. They even admit he's a miracle worker. They just think that he worked his miracles by the power of the devil. They admit that he claimed to be a, uh, the Messiah. They admit he died on the cross, but they deny his resurrection. They believe the gardener stole his body. Islam might surprise you, comes along 600 years after Christ, and they say Jesus was born of a virgin. So they get right what Judaism gets wrong, that he was be revered. He's a prophet. He's an apostle of God. He's a wise teacher. He's a miracle worker. They say he even spoke as an infant. He was sent to Israel. They deny his death on the cross. They say it just looked like it. It was a spiritual illusion. Some thinks, think it was Judas and not Christ. So there's a couple different views. They believe that Jesus right now ascended into heaven bodily and is at the right hand of God and is coming again as a Muslim to follow Muhammad and to revive Israel. They deny that he is God, that he is, dinity, uh, that he is divinity, and they deny that he is the Son of God. In fact, in the Quran in 930, it says this, the Jews say Ezra is the son of Allah. The Christians say Messiah is the son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouths. They imitate the sayings of disbelievers of old. All is cursed beyond them. How they are deluded away from the truth. So 600 years after Christ, another false Christ pops up. One who's a good prophet, born of a virgin at the right hand of God. But this false Christ is not divinity. He's coming to be a follower of Muhammad and to revive Islam. You might have some really nice people come to your door. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are Mormons. The sincerity of these people is, I don't question it. I think they want my good. I think that's why they're coming to the door. I think they have a sincere faith. But the Jehovah's Witness believe Jesus 
is a created being, the first created being. He's not God. He's not eternal. They believe that he's actually Michael, the archangel of the Old Testament. They believe that he came to be a moral example and a teacher. They believe that he came to die sacrificially for sin, not on a cross, but on a stake. And they believe that Jesus was resurrected spiritually, but not physically. It only looked that way. I remember having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness on my doorstep and asking them the question, if Jesus isn't God, how can he pay for your sin? The whole Testament says God's the Savior. The greatness of your sin is because you offended the value of God. Any substitute has to have the same value. He doesn't work as a Savior. The Mormons believe Jesus was a man. He's the Son of God, a Savior. One of the spirit beings they believe that all human beings used to be. He has a physical body. Uh, they teach about God. Uh, our Jesus came to teach about God, provide a model for living, to die sacrificially for sin. But in Mormonism, Jesus is a created being, the product of relations between a god and goddess who used to be people from another world. So there's different planets, and there's god and goddesses of different planets, and they have spiritual relations together and create spiritual embryos, and those turn into people on those planets. They believe that Jesus is the literal spirit brother of the devil. So they're, they're brothers. So there's a good brother and a bad brother. Uh, also in Mormon theology, God has a body of flesh and bones. Uh, God the Father has a body of flesh and bones, as does his wife, and together they produce spiritual offspring. Both the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon will come to your door and want to talk to you about Jesus. They'll both have a Bible in their hand. And they'll both read to you out of the Bible. And they will want to have a Bible study with you and they're probably the nicest people you've ever met. Maybe your own Christian brothers and sisters don't even want to have a Bible study with you. But they're here in the name of Jesus. They've probably been praying for your house number in your home. But with all that sincerity, they have a different Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness organization started in 1884. Buddhism, you might think they don't deal with Jesus, but actually in Buddhism, they really respect Christ's teaching. Think there's a lot of wisdom in Christ. He's an enlightened man, maybe like a yogi. What Jesus do you believe in? That's the question. And we're not going to get into a lot of detail over our text today, but we're going to take a wide look at it, and then in the coming weeks, we're going to zoom in. But I think the question on the table that Luke's putting in our lap is, who is Jesus? Look at verse 7. 
And we're going to consider the question, do you believe Jesus is merely intriguing? Here's what we read. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. Now, here's what was happening. Right before this, Jesus sent out the 12 uh, apostles, and he gave them power to cast out demons and to heal and to preach the kingdom of God. And they did it, and everyone was healed. The talk of all of Israel is, who is this Jesus and what is happening? Even his followers are doing all this stuff. You can imagine what it would be like if this was happening in our day. And so Herod, who is the seventh son of Herod the Great, uh, is given rule over this part of Israel. He's like a little mini ruler for Rome, representing the Jewish people. Herod was perplexed because it was said by some, so he's listening to the chatter, that John had been raised from the dead. Herod had cut his head off, John the Baptist. Others, but some, say that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen, and Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this from whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. If you ask Herod, if you sit down next to him in an airport and said, Herod, do you believe in Jesus? He would say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I want to see him. Actually, I've been waiting to get to know him. I want to see this Jesus. I'm intrigued by him. Everybody's talking about him. I want to see him. In fact, later in Luke, he finally gets his wish. In Luke 23, this is when Jesus is on trial. Luke 23, verse 6, when Pilate heard this, that he was, uh, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. And here's why. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So here it is, finally, Mr. Miracle Worker, right in front of Herod. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying arraign him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So who, here's Herod. He wants to believe in Jesus. He wants to see miracles. Herod wants to be entertained. He loves entertainment. Here he is. But he wanted to receive Jesus to be what? Intrigued by him. To be entertained by him. And Jesus didn't open his mouth. And when Jesus didn't give him what he want, all right, I'll mock you. Put a crown of thorns on your head. Put a fancy robe on you. 
and make fun of you because people say you're a king and you won't even talk. You won't even open your mouth. You won't even defend yourself. And we find out that he didn't even have that pure of motives because in Luke 13, in verse 31, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. (laughs) Jesus says, I'm not afraid of Herod. All he can do is kill me, and that's what I came to do anyway. Came to die. That's what Christmas is about. We're going to see that. So do do you believe Jesus because he's merely interesting, intriguing? Or do you believe in Jesus because he's helpful? Look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew to a part of town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and they welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus is continuing the ministry he just sent the apostles out to do. And the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. I think the disciples are thinking, we're hungry. And are you going to go on with this all day? Send them away. They got food they need to get. And I love what Jesus says to them. He says, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. I think this is with an eye roll and is really sarcastic. Unless we're going to go buy food for all these people for there are about 5,000 men. That means if there's 5,000 men there, that probably means that twenty to 25,000 got fed that day. Families and wives. And they said, mocking Christ, We have five loaves and two fish. (laughs) You want us to feed them? What did they just do? They just went and healed when he sent them out. He says, you feed them. And so here's what he had them do. He had them sit down groups of about 50. I would have loved to hear the disciples grumbling as they're trying to sit down 25,000 people into groups of 50. And they did so. He had them all sit down. He took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. Now, don't lose the majesty of Luke's simple words. Get the picture. Jesus has them all sit down, tells his disciples, you're going to be the waiters. Come here. Now here's here's what I'm going to do. Loaf, 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 loaf. Creating out of nothing. This is what only God can do. He created the world out of nothing. Ex nihilo. And here he is. Fish. Appearing in his hand. Loaf, loaf. Not one person questioned the miracle. Everyone saw 
what was happening. Look at this. Creating food out of nothing. And they all ate and were satisfied. The Greek word for satisfied means gorged. They ate till they couldn't eat anymore. And just in case the disciples were feeling sorry for themselves, that they've been starving this whole time and they've had to be waiters, look at There's 12 full baskets for every disciple that Christ provides for them out of mercy and kindness to them. And then we're told in John's gospel about this, when the people in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain himself. So, you see what he just did? He made all, all that bread. This is the prophet. He can be useful to us. We don't have to work anymore. Let's make him our king. What could we do with a guy like this? Jesus knew that's what they were thinking in their heads. He goes up on a mountain. Disciples go out in the boat. The people watch him go up on the mountain. They're going to keep a guy eye on this useful guy. You better believe they're going to receive him. You better believe they're going to hang on to him. Disciples go out into the lake. Storm comes. He comes walking on the water. All the people are waiting there all night for Jesus to come down from the mountain. Next morning, he's not there. What are they going to do? We didn't see him get in the boat with the disciples. Some other fishermen come in. Let's jump in their boats, go to Capernaum, see if he's there. So they show up at Capernaum. And here's what we read in John 6.26. As they show up, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I said to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. He says, I know why you want to believe in me. You just want me to give you food. You just want to make me king. You just want me to destroy all your earthly enemies down here. But then Jesus says this, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What Work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is amazing. Here's what they say. All right, you want us to follow you? You want us to believe in you? Our father Moses, he gave us bread in the wilderness. What are you going to give us? Aren't you going to keep feeding us? That's what we thought you started yesterday. Isn't that how this relationship works? Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you still do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The purpose of the miracle was to be an illustration that he's true bread from heaven. In other places, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, there's no place for you in the kingdom of God. Obviously, he's not being literal. His point is this. Why do you eat bread? Because you get hungry. Why do you drink? Because you're thirsty. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. He says, God sent Jesus into the world to satisfy your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst. You don't need to go anywhere else once you find me. He's the one whom the Father has sent. But those crowds wanted to follow Jesus because he was helpful. He was useful. Why are you following Jesus? Does he intrigue you? Is he useful to you? Let's quickly look at the verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now he's putting it in on the disciples. And in the Greek, you is in the emphatic. In a Greek sentence, we don't put them in order the way we do in English, but you can put whatever you word at, at the front of the sentence to make it emphatic. And you is at the front end. It's like, I don't know how to say it to you when I read it, but who do you say that I am individually? Jesus is looking at the disciples and he wants to know from them a whole lot of talk about me out there. Who do you say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, other one of, one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, they don't get by with it like that. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, what does Christ mean? It just literally means the anointed one. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people are waiting for their Savior that is the Messiah, the anointed one. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God promised from the seed of the woman, from a woman's child, Satan's head's going to be crushed. And then God told Abraham, one of your children, one from your line is going to bless the nations. And then God told David, a son of yours is going to be king and his kingdom will never come to an end. Israel's been waiting for their Messiah, but they couldn't imagine what a kingdom that never ends looks like. I think they think that king's son will go on forever. They couldn't imagine a God-man whose kingdom literally never ends. But Peter says, you are the Christ, the only way of salvation. 
The only thing that can reverse Adam and Eve's sin is the Savior that comes from the seed of the woman. But they thought their Savior was going to come and rule with might and a strong sword and slay the Romans and all their enemies around them. They despised a king that doesn't open his mouth. They despise a king that defeats his enemies by dying for them. It's a different type of Christ. Even the disciples struggle with him. But when he says that, when Peter says, you are the Christ, in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus replied to him, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Because right at that moment, people would say, look at Peter, he's so smart. He figured out Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus right away says, no, my Father showed that to you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul taught the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And then in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to say you are the Christ without the Holy Spirit enlightening your eyes to see that. You're born spiritually dead. And yet, Peter professes Christ as from God. Uh, the one from God. And we know that he thought they were going to have this triumphant rule. We're part of these 12. But then here's what we read in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Does that bother you a little bit? Isn't this the point? That word is in, in the Greek, strictly charged, is vehemently tells them, don't you dare say this to anybody. I'm sitting there this week going, man, I'm, I'm going to have to read on this. This is weird. But the rest of the sentence answers the question, I think. He commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want people to think that all he came to do was to heal diseases and to merely just cast out demons. If you go tell them that now, then they're really going to try to make me king right now. You just wait. Here's what I came to do. I came to die. Let me tell you ahead of time what's going to happen. I'm going to go to that cross. I'm going to be handed over, but then I'm going to be raised again. That's when the church is given the gospel and they're commanded to go. Preach the good news to sinful people who have sin on them. And not only that, but 
he tells them here's how their relationship's going to be to him. So if you're going to make that profession that Jesus is the Christ and this is and he's going to a cross, then he tells them this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is saying this. If you follow me, and this is your experience of your profession, here's my life. It's going pretty good, you know, ups and downs in my life. Oh, I had Jesus on right here. This made my life a little better. You don't know Jesus. (laughs) You may have received him because he's helpful. You may have received him because he's intriguing, but you don't know Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, here's the experience of your life. Here's my life. It's, and I run into Jesus, and this life begins to die. In fact, that's the purpose of it. Your new life in Christ is now to crucify this king and this queen that have been usurping his rightful throne. You and I are all born as little kings and little queens, stiff-arming God. Wanting to control your whole life. Wanting to submit to nobody. And yet the gospel is what Jesus just taught. Is if you want to follow me, you die to your own kingdom. You begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you'll find new life. Because we were never created to be a king of our life. God is a good God. And we were created to submit and love him. And Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And if you guys want to follow me, it's going to be your head. All the disciples were persecuted. Most of them died young. One lived long, a torturous life. But they found real life. He says, if you're ashamed of me, that's fine. Most people are. But you're going to forfeit your soul. You may keep this thing going. You may try to save this thing, but you'll lose your soul in the end. So the question is, is which Jesus do you follow? Do you believe he's God? Do you believe he's man? Do you believe the purpose of his life was to take on flesh so that he could go to a cross and be a substitute in your place? The only way you and I could ever have a relationship with God is if somehow all of our sins could be taken away. Because sin separates from a holy God. And Christ came to be the mediator to stand in your place. When Jesus was on that cross, Isaiah 53, 10, 750 years before Christ, might be 11, I can't remember, but it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him the one who is pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities were put on him. The chastisement we deserved was on him. Is that the Jesus? 
you want to talk to your friends about? You see, talking about the blood of Christ and sin and dying to your old life, it's not popular in our day and age, but it is the only way. Christ is the only way. I was thinking, wonder what types of false Christ we might be struggled to trust in. What would be, because Peter, right after this confession, he says, surely you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. To Peter, right after he makes this confession. Because in Peter's mind, you're the Christ. You're, gonna do, you're not going to suffer and die. I wonder if your Jesus can be an entertaining Jesus, an intriguing Jesus. There's another Jesus I see everywhere. I call it the God bless America, Jesus. This is a Jesus whose main purpose is to bless America. The sign that you're trusting in this Jesus is your mind and heart is set more on earthly things than the kingdom to come. A sign that you might be trusting in the God bless America, Jesus, is the fact that those who don't share your rules and your morals are your enemies rather than fellow sinners who need Christ. Another sign that you might be trusting in that Jesus is you're very proud and you haven't been humbled. You don't know that your biggest enemy is not outside of you but inside your own heart. You see, when you receive Jesus, because you know how rotten your heart is, it's no fun to go around and play, I believe the right rules game. I'm better. It could be all sorts of different ones. I just want to make this practical for us. Even us can be tempted to get off track, take our eyes off the kingdom of God and start setting our hope on earthly rulers rather than on our king whose kingdom will last forever. And it's my prayer that we're disciples of Christ, that we're ambassadors that take to a broken world those who don't profess Christ, that we love them and we're patient with them and we have mercy on them and we proclaim the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can know who Christ was and is because of your word. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be merely sentimental, but that we would live off our theology of knowing who Christ is. Lord, I pray that we would know that he is a king, that the Bible teaches all of our knees will bow before him. Whether we believe in him or not, we will bow before King Christ. God, I pray that nobody here would stiff arm God's only son, his plan of salvation, the only mediator, but they would receive him, receive forgiveness for their sins and be made sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.